welcome to As Luck Would Have It. My name is Abby and I'm the admin and comms worker here at Luck Art Uniting. We are a church based on Gadigal and Wongal land here in Sydney, Australia. You'll find us at Leichhardt Uniting Church-LUC on Facebook. Sermons are on YouTube under the same name and you can find out more information about our church and our team at leichhardtuniting.org.au. In this episode of As Luck Would Have It, Reverend Adrian Sukumar white is preaching about experience from Acts 11, 1-18. This is the fourth episode in a five-part series of Being the Church Through Acts, originally preached for the season of Easter 2021. I will be providing the reading ahead of the sermon. This is the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 1 to 18, from the New Revised Standard Version. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come to Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them and, because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and they worked together. By trade, they were tent makers. Every Sabbath, he would argue in the synagogue and would try to convince Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with proclaiming the word, testifying to the Jews that the Messiah was Jesus. When they opposed and reviled him, In protest he shook the dust from his clothes and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Then he left the synagogue and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the official of the synagogue, became a believer in the Lord together with all his household and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul became believers and were baptised. One night the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid, but speak, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will lay a hand on you to harm you, for there are many in this city who are my people. He stayed there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. Thus ends the reading. Please enjoy the following sermon. Good morning. As we come to the time of sermon, let us pray. Gracious and loving God, your word is before us. May we see it with new eyes. May we hear it with new ears. May it open and touch our lives that we might better be your disciples wherever we are today. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When Radhika was pregnant with Anna, we had all the usual pregnancy conversations. What names would we give her? Would she go to public or private school? Which instruments would we force her to learn? You know, the usual stuff. But there was one thing that I was adamant about, and that was that I didn't want to know the sex beforehand. I was absolutely sure on this. At least I was until Rads asked why, and I was like, oh... I had no good response. Maybe others do have good reasons for this, and if you do, let me know. But as we talked about it, there were so many benefits to knowing beforehand for us. At the very least, it makes the whole naming thing a lot more easy to manage. And so with so many pros in the knowing column, all I could muster for not knowing was some weird sense of tradition, that not knowing was somehow the right thing to do. 
What what on earth does this have to do with our reading from Acts? Well, stick with me and it'll all become clear. Maybe. It's no secret that the Bible is a complex book or perhaps more accurately a complex library. Many texts from many different genres written across thousands of years. And so with that in mind, it's unsurprising then that it can be sometimes a challenge for us to connect with the text. Where should we start? How do we know what is important and what is not? Fortunately, the text sometimes comes to our aid. And today's reading is a great example of this as we come to the final week of our series on being the church through Acts. Because the story that we just heard from Acts chapter 11 is actually the second time that this story appears in Acts. And it happens in quick succession. With the events that are reported in chapter 11, actually taking place in chapter 10. So in, in essence, we have the same story back to back. If that's not an indication that this is an important story, I don't know what is. It's the equivalent of a literary megaphone. Luke tells us the story twice to ensure that we don't miss what's happening here. So if there's something important happening, the question is, What? Now, it begins with everyone's favourite biblical topic, circumcision. The Jewish members of the community, that is the circumcised believers, were annoyed that the Gentiles are being welcomed into the community, that is the uncircumcised. And they say to Peter, why did you go to the uncircumcised men and eat with them? Now, it might sound a bit inane to us, but... Believe me, this is a very significant conflict for the early church. And it goes back to the all-important question of identity. Who are we? And for those from the Jewish tradition, you cannot answer that question without talking about Abraham, the father of the nations. Earlier this year, we explored some of the covenants that God made with God's people throughout the Old Testament. And whilst there are a few, and they all have their own unique features, God's covenant with Abraham is generally seen as the big one. It's the one that shapes the narrative that Jewish people are God's chosen people. The covenant that is made with Abraham will be that Abraham will be the father of many nations. Ironic as at that point, Abraham and Sarah were childless. Now, of course, there's a whole debacle that follows with Abraham and Sarah and Hagar and Ishmael and Isaac that Radica preached on earlier in the year as well. But ultimately, the narrative becomes that Abraham is the ultimate ancestor of Israel and that all the generations that follow are the results of God's covenant with Abraham. And the covenant wasn't just words. There was a physical sign of covenant, and that was circumcision. From Genesis chapter 17. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So we have to be very careful not to dismiss the importance of this idea for the Jewish community. This is circumcision is a significant part of their answer to the question of identity, a physical embodiment of covenant with God. 
But at the same time, however, we can see how this becomes problematic for the early church. That this was no longer just about those from the Jewish faith and ancestry, but for everyone. And for us today, we should also recognise the inherent problem of male circumcision as a sign of the covenant, which effectively pushes half of the potential community to the side as well as reinforces a patriarchal structure in how we relate to God. Peter sees the first problem, at least, and retells the story of a moment of conversion that he experienced, not to do with circumcision specifically, but instead about food purity. Now, it could seem that Peter is avoiding the topic at hand, but the story that he tells helps us to see how they are connected. First, the accusatorial question of the Jewish members links the two together. Why did you go to uncircumcised men and eat with them? Because the uncircumcised, that is the Gentiles, are not really going to care about Jewish food purity laws. And Peter went and ate with them. And this connection is further strengthened with the realisation that the issue of food purity is also an issue of identity. Circumcision approaches the issue of identity by covenant, ancestry and lineage. Whilst food purity comes at it in terms of social and religious practice, it is identity through the law of the Torah. A significant chunk of the book of Leviticus is devoted into spelling out the rules around food purity. It is very specific and very detailed to the point of naming specific animals that, you are, that are in or out, the ones you can eat and the ones you can't. It even has a section about insects and because I'm sure you're all dying to know, it's okay to eat locusts. But in Peter's vision, the very animals that Leviticus forbids to be eaten are the ones that Peter is told to eat with the slightly creepy instruction, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Important side note, though, this is one of the passages that is often used to justify meat-eating against vegetarianism. Look, the Bible says it's okay, but this isn't a story about meat-eating versus vegetarianism. This is about food purity, about what is unclean and unclean. And so if you come across someone using this text as a defence for meat-eating, know that they are missing the point. But it's also important that we don't miss the point as to how significant and how serious this conversation is. For Peter, this is a complete reframing of his worldview and religious practice. You can almost hear the pain in his words when asked to eat that which he understood to be unclean. By no means, Lord, for nothing profane or unclean has ever entered my mouth. This is genuine conflict internalised in Peter and externalised within the community who are now questioning his actions. But this vision is persistent. Three times it comes to challenge Peter's assumption about what is clean and unclean. And then to put the cherry on top, Peter speaks of a prompting of the Holy Spirit that he should go with the three Gentiles who turn up at his house, who themselves bring the news of their own prompting of the Holy Spirit to come and find Peter. 
And with that, we see the change. With these extraordinary words of revelation, if then God gave them the same gift that God gave us when we believed in Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could hinder God? I'm not sure if there are many statements in Scripture as powerful as this one. Who am I that I could hinder God? For me, this captures two of the core concepts of Christian faith, humility and responsibility. So first, humility. One of the most dangerous assumptions that we can hold is that we somehow know exactly what God wants for the world. Because as soon as we make that assumption, we can then equate our actions to God's actions. Throughout history, this has been one of the great sins of the church, committing innumerable atrocities in the name of God or because of God's will. And when there is no longer need for God, then we become God ourselves. And we are seeing this play out in horrific fashion in the Middle East right now. When Israel, with support from the US, continues to see its oppression of Palestinians as God's will, that the land is theirs by divine right, that they can can and they will continue to justify the violence that has exploded in the past week. These words of Peter are so needed to be heard right now. Because this statement challenges certainty. It challenges our assumed privilege and power and instead invites us into a posture of humility. A recognition that ultimately we are not in control. That we are finite beings. That we have finite foresight, finite capacity, finite patience, finite everything. We are limited beings. And so it is essential that we continue to evaluate and reevaluate ourselves and our communities as to how we are trying to connect with the work of God in the world. And with that comes responsibility, because we need to do that work. We need to ask ourselves, how might we be hindering God? And we could understand this in terms of sin. Now, the simplistic concept of sin that most of us have encountered is, that is, sin is the bad things that you do, is incredibly narrow. But we can expand the idea of sin to being anything, anything that turns us away from God. So, of course, that does include the bad stuff that we do, but also includes the good stuff that we choose not to do. And it also takes the concept of sin from being a purely personal thing to a place where we can recognize the existence of systemic sin in the world and not just recognize it but acknowledge our complicity in it and then to do what we can to turn back to God who am I that I could hinder God is a question of reorientation it reorients us from looking inward from looking for self-service and reminds us of the bigger calling, the bigger endeavour, the coming kingdom of God.
but as powerful as this statement of Peter's is, the consequences of it blow it completely out of the water. Because for a time, at least, the church finds a way for Jews and Gentiles to share in real community together. And the story of how Peter gets them there is so important because scripture was incredibly clear. There were some things you could eat and some things you couldn't eat. The chosen ones were circumcised and the unchosen were not. The traditions of the community were very clear. And yet, here, it is experience that brings change. Another long-term sin of the church has been its disregard of experience in developing its theology and practice. Because we are experiential beings. We relate to the world through our experiences. And so to deny that God can and does engage with us beyond scripture and beyond the traditions of the church gives us a very limited view of who God is. It was my warped sense of tradition that gave me a limited view as to whether we should know the sex or not. Nothing there beyond, well, it's, it's what's been done. It's what you should do. See, I told you it would become clearer. <laughs> but we do have to be careful, though, because if we go too far in the other direction, we are in danger of developing an anything-goes mentality, and doing so will limit our ability to find purpose and meaning. From the story, it's clear that this isn't just an ordinary experience. Something special happened. And if we go back to chapter 10, when the events are told for the first time, we get a little bit more detail. After noon the next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while it was prepared, he fell into a trance. Peter was preparing himself for this experience. He was in the posture of prayer. I also personally think it's hilarious that we're told that he was hungry, that the radical inclusion of Gentiles into the new church happened because of Peter's rumbling stomach. But even that, even that points to the experience. In his hunger, his revelatory vision comes in the form of food. Food is also the source of the conflict that Peter ate with the Gentiles and is also the result of the amazing outcome that through the movement of the Spirit, Jews and Gentiles can now gather around the same table as one community, one body, bound together through the grace of Jesus Christ. Across five weeks, between Easter and Pentecost, Radhika and I have brought you some of the greatest hits of Acts, although the book has much more to share with us that we won't get to this time around. But we hope that this, through this series we have been able to discover and rediscover what it means for us to be the church together and also want to extend the invitation for you to return to the book of Acts and to read the whole thing and see what comes to you from it. In week one, we heard the story of the ascension when Christ went from physical presence to superabundant presence and we were reminded of our invitation to participate in Christ's mission in the world, to be witnesses to Christ's vision 
of the kingdom of God. In week two, we read the account of the followers of Jesus sharing everything in common, the embodiment of God's covenantal community, finally brought to fruition through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. And Radhika reminded us that being in Christian community was always meant to be countercultural, valuing radical generosity in response to God's radical generosity. In week three, we encountered the troubling story of Ananias and Sapphira that I'm still bitter about, reminding us of the fragility of community and how we need to bring the whole of ourselves, the good and the bad, if community is to grow and thrive. In week four, we read the beautiful story of the conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch who found comfort and hope in the gospel of Jesus, the cut-off one who was baptised without any conditions. And we were reminded that Philip was converted too through this experience and that that's what church should be like, communities of mutual transformation. And finally today, that the church should and can be a place where all are welcome at the table and that we need to bring our humility and to share the responsibility to actually make that happen. None of this is easy, but all of it is worth it. And we, Radhika and I, are blessed to be able to take this journey with you at this time, in this place, to be the church together. Hallelujah. Amen. Thanks for joining us for this episode of As Luck Would Have It, proudly presented by Leichhardt Uniting Church. If you have not yet done so, please subscribe and feel free to leave a rating or review. And you can also visit our website and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and YouTube. Have a great day.